Anger? Awesome. We invite you down for our children's chat at this time. How are y'all doing? All right. Um, you read that book ten times. I don't. Yeah. I, you can read the whole thing in a day. That's my kind of book. Okay. Very good. Um, Caden, I have a question for you. You ready? Can you do a headstand? What, what if I helped you? All right, come here. We'll see if we can get you on your head. All right, stand right there. All right, here, face this way, that way. All right, kneel down on, on your knees. There you go. Now put your hands out like that on the floor. All right, and bend your elbows and put your head on the floor. All right, and then put, a, put this knee right here and this knee right there. There you go. That's, that'll work. You can do it that way, too. Put your hands down. All right. So today, we're going to talk about Jesus' upside-down kingdom. What? Yeah, it's going to be a long talk, and he's going to stay this way until we're done. <laughs> Sound good? How you doing? Good. All right. You want to get up? Okay. So we're talking about Jesus' upside-down kingdom. What? What's so funny? Okay, I'm going to put you down. You ready? There you go. Good job. Give me five. All right. A handstand? No, I just needed a headstand. I just needed him upside down. So why would I say that Jesus' kingdom is upside down? So... If there was a king who was going to ride into town on a horse, what kind of horse would the king ride in on? A, a donkey. <laughs> okay, so you've been paying attention. I like that. I like that. They said a donkey, if you didn't hear that. Um, but, okay, so let's say that a big, powerful warrior was going to ride into town on a horse. What kind of horse would he ride in on? No. Wow. They're owning me. A big, strong horse. And what kind of horse did Jesus ride in on? A, a baby, a baby donkey, even. Right? Um, let's see. If you were a big, powerful king, what would you do to your enemies? A Not a donkey. <laughs> would you defeat your enemies? But Jesus said, Jesus said we're supposed to love our enemies. You give them cookies. Right? 
You could give them your donkey or cookies. My enemies have given me a lot of cookies. Can you tell? Okay, so if you were a, were a valiant, strong king, you would hold in your hand what? When you went to war, what would you hold in your hand? A sword, not a donkey. A sword. Do you know what, you know what Jesus' sword is? Do you know what Jesus' sword is? It's right here. It's not a donkey. It's the... It's the Word of God. The Bible says that the sword that Jesus carries is the Word of God, right? So instead of a sword, he carries a Bible. Instead of defeating his enemies, he loves them. Instead of riding in on a big, strong horse, he comes in on a baby donkey. And Jesus, instead of putting the evil one to death, Jesus went to the cross and died our death. He died so that we could be forgiven. His kingdom works almost completely the opposite of the way that our kingdoms work. Power is in love. Faith, hope, and love, these three things abide, but the greatest of these is not a donkey. It's love. All right. Y'all get it? I don't know if you get it. What kind of kingdom does Jesus lead? What kind of kingdom does Jesus lead? Heaven. But what kind of kingdom? Not a donkey. An upside-down kingdom, where instead of strength, he shows love. Instead of condemning, he shows forgiveness. Okay. I think you get it. Can I pray for you guys before you go to Hope for Kids? All right. Dear Lord, thank you for these children and the blessing that they are to our families and our church. And we just pray your blessing over them. As they study more of your word and hope for kids today, fill them with your Holy Spirit. Lead them into a deeper understanding of how much you love them. We pray this over them in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, y'all have fun. What's that? Yes. And dear Lord, we lift up those who are teaching and hope for kids today. I hope they play pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, speaking of prayer, will you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we uh, come before you today as we open your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, tell us those things that we need to hear through your word. And Lord, in preparing to come before your word, we lay at the foot of your cross the burdens of our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would take those relationships in our lives that are strained and that you would work through uh, your peace and reconciliation where it is needed.
we lift to you those whom we know and love who are sick or facing uncertain diagnoses. And we pray your healing mercies upon your people. Um, we lift up John Davern's mother, Sue, who's in the hospital. We just pray your healing over her uh, heart condition. And we just pray that you would uh, be close to her, work with the doctors and nurses and others who are involved in her diagnosis and treatment and bring her back to full health. And Lord, we um, lift up this country at every level of government, elected and appointed. We pray for wisdom and discernment in the decisions that are before those who represent us. We lift up our men and women in uniform. We pray that you would watch over and protect them. We pray especially for those who are in harm's way. We ask that you would bring them home safely. Lord, we lift to you those who've returned home uh, from their time of service changed. And we pray that you would minister your healing to them, mind, body, and soul. And that you would use us, your church, to uh, minister your grace and healing to them as well. And Lord, we lift to you uh, those churches that we are connected to through our denomination and through our missions, giving. And we just pray uh, your blessing over those works uh, where you are um, moving. And we pray for our missionaries in Guatemala, in Laredo, Texas, in Cuba, in Beirut, Lebanon, and elsewhere in the Middle East. And we just pray your blessing over what you're doing in those places. We lift up the church plants that are going on in Texas, in New Braunfels, in Austin, and in Dallas. And we pray your blessing over those young works. We pray you would be with us now as we open your word, speak to us, and that we might be grown more and more into the men and women of God that you have created us to become. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. All right. We are uh, in part two of a new series of messages called Crystallized. We are looking at uh, the New Testament just in its simplest terms. We're taking each week a different concept from the New Testament, and we are kind of rolling that out uh, in, in terms of understanding its meaning. And this morning, we come to uh, this idea of the kingdom. Last week, we looked at the idea of fulfillment and in the ways in which Jesus was the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, that all of the Bible points to him or is drawn from his coming. And so, we come today to look at this concept of the kingdom, and I'll just try to define this for you in, in a couple different ways. First of all, of all of the subjects that Jesus talks about and that we have recorded of his teachings in the Gospels, the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, seems to be the most recurring theme that Jesus takes up. So, Whatever this is, this kingdom that Jesus talks about, he talks about it a lot. We are to hopefully take from that that this is an important theme in God's eyes and that we are to kind of hone in on this idea of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, however it's phrased, because it's important enough that Jesus came back to it very frequently in his teachings. Then, to just simplify, what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom in its simplest form is the domain over which a king has authority. Okay? It's just that simple. 
So the kingdom of God is that domain over which God has authority. The kingdom of heaven is the same thing. It's that that domain over which God in heaven has authority. And so we're going to take a look at uh, some Old Testament passages and some New Testament passages. I'm going to be jumping around a lot uh, in different, to different parts of the Bible, um, but you can follow along on the screen behind me, and you can follow along in your bulletin. It should be printed there for you. And then if you have a Bible and you like to just like flip continually to different places, by all means, show off a little bit if you can find all these places as fast as we go through them. I'm going to begin in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, and it's, this is from the middle of the story where Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God had told them not to. The only thing that God had really said to Adam was, you can do whatever you want, man. Have a great time in this place, this paradise. That tree over there, don't eat from it. What does he do? Same thing I would have done. It's like, ooh, forbidden fruit. That sounds really good. Um, And so we pick up in the middle of the story what God does. He moves into the garden after they've eaten, uh, he kind of storms into the garden, and they go hide, uh, which is, a, I think, a natural human reaction to uh, being caught. And so they go hide. God comes and finds them and says, what did you do? And he says to Adam, you know, what have you done? He talks to Adam first. Adam goes, this woman that you gave me, right? He, he points blame in two different directions. Uh, she gave me the fruit and I ate it, right? And God looks at the woman and he says to Eve, what have you done? She only points to one other person and it's not God and it's not her husband. She's like, that serpent over there deceived me and I ate. He made me think it was good and it wasn't and I'm sorry, right? So then God turns to the serpent and curses the serpent. He curses, the serpent is the, the incarnation of evil And God curses the serpent, and then he turns to the man, and he says, well, he turns then to the woman, so he goes in reverse order. He turns to Eve, and he says, there are going to be some consequences here. Um, And all of Eve's consequences involve uh, the relationships that will be in the part of her family. It's like, there's going to be stress between you and your husband. Can I get an amen? (laughs) All right. Um, And there's going to be stress with your kids. Yeah, got another amen. Um, these, are the two, these are the two things that are, that are going to matter the most to you, and these are the two places where it's going to hurt the most in, in the reality of, a, of living in a sinful world. And then he turns to Adam, and he says uh, uh, several things, actually, but we'll read some of those words here, the beginning of God's speech to Adam. Now, I snipped a little bit out just because I wanted to fit all the verses on this first page onto one page. Uh, I'm not scared of what's there. You can read it for yourself. But um, in in fact, it might, I don't know, is it in the, no, I snipped it there too. Anyway, I'm I'm not hiding from it. 
It's in the Bible. I'll be happy to deal with it at some point. This morning, we're just focusing on one aspect of this passage, and we'll get to that. So God is speaking in the, in the response to the human sin, to sin entering into the human condition. And this is what, the, this is what it says in Genesis three seventeen. And to Adam, he said, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. This is a distinction. Before this, they were only eating uh, of the trees in the garden, so like Californians, fruits and nuts, right? That's all they're... Well, yeah, you get it. But um, um, and and then now God says you're going to have to work to eat. No more hanging out in my garden and just eating whatever grows there. You're going to have to go out, plow the ground, and make food come up. And if you've ever talked to a farmer, uh, anytime a human disturbs the soil, what grows there? Weeds, right? Weeds and thistles and thorns and bad things. And so this is God saying to Adam, like life in my garden was paradise. And you really didn't have to do much. Um, Now, everything's changed. There will be stress. There will be uh, discomfort. There will be obstacles to uh, your comfort. So let me jump from that One of the consequences of sin, according to this passage, is thorns. Keep that in your mind. Now we're going to jump to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 27 through 29. This is the account of Jesus' approach to the crucifixion. So he has been tried and condemned and beaten and scourged. He's been whipped on his back. He's gone through quite an ordeal up to this point, and then we get these words in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns... They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So you see several things going on here. This is is called uh, historical irony, right? That the people who are about to execute Jesus Christ are mocking him as the King of the Jews. At the same time, they are actually telling the truth. They are proclaiming what is actually true about him in this really ironic way. And they dress him in a purple robe. Now, this would have been particularly painful on his freshly wounded back. Um, And they put upon his head, without knowing what they are doing, they put a crown on his head made of thorns. They are, without being aware, they are reaching all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and saying in really clear terms, Jesus is taking the consequence of your sin 
upon himself. His crown and his kingdom, as he has crowned the king, his crown is made of the consequences of our sin. And so here we see him in this state. I'm going to jump back to Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. This is again in the Old Testament, and there's this little verse that just says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. I want to just point out, when that passage was written, Isaiah was writing to a group of people who would be in Jerusalem after its destruction by the Babylonians. So imagine your, your city is in ruins, your life as you knew it was over, uh, there's no more iPhones, no more internet, none of that stuff, um, it's all been wiped out, and you're left in the wake of all this destruction, and Isaiah says to you, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So we're going to jump ahead to Luke chapter 4, verses 42 through 43, and we're going to see Jesus effectively laying claim to being the one whose feet are beautiful because he is bringing good news. Uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 42 and 43. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus is effectively saying, I am the one who is called to bring good news to all people. And then we're going to jump to the last book of the Bible real quick, to Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And I'll just sort of set the scene for you here. The, uh, the author of Revelation is called John of Patmos. He was probably the Apostle John who wrote the Gospel of John. He's been exiled because of his faith to a little island uh, in the Greek Isles. Not such a bad prison, um, but he couldn't leave. And while he's there, God sends an angel to, to take him up to get a glimpse of heaven. And John writes in the book of Revelation, he writes about this. He writes about what he saw and what he experienced, and he writes what God wants him to bring back to the churches on earth as a message. So early in John's time in heaven, he's standing before the throne of God, and he is in complete awe. And then at some point, God holds up a scroll. And that scroll is the scroll of God's judgment and wrath. And the question is asked, who can open this? And every head ducks. Every head present just, nope, I can't do it. And John begins to have a brief moment of, of panic as he realizes that there's no one who can handle this scroll. No one who can take it from God and save God's people from his judgment and wrath. And then the angel says to John as he begins to weep, 
the angel says, don't cry. Don't freak out. There is one. There is one who has come, who is worthy. And John, expecting, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, dressed as Conan the Barbarian, to come walking into the room and grab that scroll, he turns and he sees what looks like a lamb that has had its throat slit. It's a really weird image, right? So you're expecting the one entity in the universe who can reach out and take a hold of God's judgment and wrath and handle it. And John turns and it's a, it's a lamb that's been slain. And he's like, what? And then all of heaven breaks out in a chorus. And this is where these words we pick up. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So throughout those passages, you see these themes of the kingdom, of the good news, of the reign of God and the reign of his people. And now we're going to switch to a few passages just in the gospel of Matthew and then one passage from the God, from the book of Romans and I'll try to move through these quickly but see if you don't see the recurring theme here as well from Matthew 5:3 this is the very first teaching the very first line of the very first teaching that Matthew records in his gospel the teaching of Jesus and Jesus begins his sermon on the mount by saying this bizarre sentence Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then, just a chapter later, Matthew records Jesus uh, teaching us how to pray. And in the Lord's Prayer, you remember the words, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And then a few verses later, Jesus reminds us, in the wake of telling us that you know, humans are worriers. We worry about everything. We fret about everything. And Jesus says to that question, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And then in Matthew 18, um, you know, everybody thinks of the, of the 12 apostles, the disciples, as these godly, selfless people uh, get, get a glimpse of this from Matthew 18. Um, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I don't know if you've ever made the mistake of trying to read uh, ancient Greek philosophy, like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Parmenides, any of those guys. If you ever hear what they say about children, it is an astonishing contrast to what Jesus says. They, they say things like children are a nuisance, 
and they should be put into to rooms, soundproof rooms, until they're old enough to think for themselves and, and, and behave themselves. Like Socrates, all those, the, it, <laughs> we can go on. They, they also said uh, really uh, terrible things about women. And Jesus had in his, in his closest following there were numerous women that were part of his following, that were important parts of his ministry on earth. Um, so all that to say, we're painting a picture of a very different kind of kingdom, a different, ki- a different philosophy, if you will, of life. And so Jesus is revealing the, these differences in what he teaches. And then Paul has an interesting uh, take on the kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 14, verse 17, he says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if you think about um, rulers in the ancient world, I'll, I'll just bring up Herod as an example. Uh, in, the, in the time of Jesus, Herod was a puppet ruler. He held the seat that used to be important, and then the Romans took over, and instead of being uh, having real authority, he just sort of had authority like the king of England has, right? He doesn't really do anything. He's just the king. I'm not big on the monarchy. Those of you who are, uh, what do you call those people? Anglophiles, and royalty followers, I, I don't care. I, <laughs> who cares, right? It, but you get the point. Herod is reduced to this office that's very much like the current English monarch, has no authority, all symbolic, and so all he does is he sits around with, and has feasts. So he eats and drinks and invites people over and you know, has parties and cuts off the head of John the Baptist and other stuff like that. He's a freak. He's a weird guy. And Paul kind of calls out the contrast. It's like the kingdom that we're talking about, it's not like earthly kingdoms. This kingdom is spiritual. It's not physical. The domain, the dominion of God is spiritual, not physical. So, where shall we begin in digesting all of these passages? Um, let's start here. That the, the scriptures want us to honor the king of God's upside-down kingdom. That we are learning through God's word that his kingdom is different. It is distinct. It is other than the way things work typically on this planet. We are to see his crown, that he took the thorns of our sin upon himself. Um, and I'll just, I'll just point out, I, I just want to say this, like th- that observation of Genesis 3 and the thorns that were the result of Adam and Eve's sin and Jesus putting on the crown of thorns came up through our children's ministry preparing a lesson for today on Jesus' upside-down kingdom. And I got the text message, like, is this, is this, and I'm like, that just blew my mind. 
Like, that's awesome. So, you know, what your kids are getting here is really cool stuff. And I even was like, yeah, I'm totally stealing that, right? So they're going to make a crown that when they turn it upside down, it goes from thorns to a, to a king's crown. And that's what they're doing in there today. Um, and I totally, I just wanted to make sure you understood the footnote there. I stole that from our children's ministry teachers as they were preparing a lesson this week. Um, but incredible observation that the results of our sin are actually put onto Jesus's head and pressed into his flesh as part of his atoning work for our forgiveness. He took the thorns of our sin and he died to bring us new life. So this idea that a king would come in and a conquering king would typically defeat and, and kill his enemy. And Jesus comes in and offers his life as a sacrifice for our sins. That he dies that we might have life. This is a complete inverse of what you would expect from a conquering king. And yet, he conquered sin and death. He rose from the grave and gives us eternal hope. We are to see his crown and we are to see his feet. This word that was spoken into the context of a destroyed Jerusalem. And I'll just ask you, like, where, where is that calamity in your own life? It, it might have been in your childhood. It might have been recent. It might be current. It might have been uh, as an adult. At any point in your life, you have experienced this, this destruction of all that is right and good in your world. Your world has been crushed, it has been broken, and you have been left devastated. And what does God say to you in that state? He says there's still good news. And I, you know, I, I envision someone like running towards this destroyed Jerusalem with this message. And by the time he or she gets there, their feet are trashed, they're bleeding, they're just not pretty. But they bring a message that makes everyone who hears it say, those feet are beautiful because they brought good news, they brought hope, they brought the renewal of all that is good and right and true in this world. We are to hear the good news in the face of despair. The good news of the kingdom of God is what Jesus came to preach. You heard him say that in that passage from Luke, I think it was. And what he is saying is that there's hope, that there is, there is wholeness in the wake of brokenness. There is healing in the wake of illness. There is restoration in the wake of brokenness. There is rebuilding in the wake of destruction. That God is the God who heals, who loves, who renews, who rebuilds. We're to hear the good news in the face of our own despair, and we are to trust the messenger. That messenger, according to Luke, is the one who brings security in the face, well, through 
God's reign. So at the end of that Isaiah passage, it's how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And then that last line, who says to Zion, that's God's people, that's you, your God reigns. There's, there's powerful irony there that God is saying this to his people uh, while they're sitting in a city that's destroyed. In the midst of the destruction comes the declaration that there is hope. We, through, through the messenger, through the Christ, the risen one, we find in our own hearts, our own lives, things like peace and goodness and salvation. So going back to the Isaiah 52, 7 verse, um, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. That word salvation is the same word as the name of Jesus. So in, in Hebrew, it would be like, I'm not very good at Hebrew, but it would be like Yeshua, right? That's the word that is put right there. So that that messenger of good news publishes Yeshua, Jesus, salvation to God's people. That we can trust this messenger. And we trust him, as we saw in that passage from Matthew, because he's, he is the king. He has a dominion over which he reigns. And it is simply, there's, there's no gold in his kingdom. There's no land. There's no military. There's just, it's just us. You are, are the currency that he trades in. What God wants to accumulate are human hearts. You are the only resource in his kingdom. Your heart, your soul, your presence as his child. That's what he wants. And so we are to honor the king of this upside-down kingdom, and we are to enter into God's upside-down kingdom. And I, I kind of stuck, uh, I spent a lot of time in the Gospel of Matthew this week, and just wanted to kind of take you through that journey of those, of those kingdom, some of the many kingdom verses in Matthew, um, and sort of just try to distill down what is it that this kingdom is, is about. And so we're going to just start with this idea that we are to make God's kingdom our priority in this life that we're to stop worrying about all the stuff that people worry about, all the insanity that, that we go through as human beings pales in comparison to this one thing. God loves you. He's crazy about you. He wants you to know him better. He wants you to grow more and more into the person that he created you to become. You're not done. There's a way to go yet. But he loves you. And he's not going to stop pursuing you until you are home in his arms. That's, where he's, that's his goal. 
And so we, as God's children, are called to let go of our need to control. That's what it means for God to have dominion, to have sovereignty, to be in charge. It means he's in control. And if you are a control freak, which is all of you, by the way, um, uh, then you need to hear God say to you, let go. I've got this. Trust me. Know that I am faithful, that I love you, that where I'm taking you is good. We're to let go of our need for control. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. We're not, we're not thinking that we ourselves have everything we need for, to, to gain salvation. We, we stop at the foot of his cross and we go, I could have never done that for myself. I'm humbled. I'm broken. I'm in need of grace. We're to let go of our need for control, and we're to seek God's will, not our own. You've, you've said it in the Lord's Prayer. I don't know how many times you've said the Lord's Prayer. If you grew up Catholic, it's thousands, like literally thousands of times. Um, if you grew up in some other tradition, it's probably hundreds of times. Uh, if you didn't grow up in the church at all, you've heard it a few times, but you've still heard it. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That we seek in our own hearts, in our own lives, in our own daily interactions, the manifestation of God's will, not mine. This is what makes us people of, of peace and joy and wholeness, that we're not out to build our own kingdom. We're out to see the will of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God come about in this insane world. So we're to make his kingdom our priority, and we're to let his kingdom shape our character. <clears throat> we start this shaping with what the Bible calls humility. I need to just close my Bible for a second and admit to you, I'm, I was a Texan before I was a Christian. Okay, Humility does not come naturally to this cowboy. Right? Uh, that's not my default. It's, it, my default is very different. You don't want to see it. Um, Humility is a quality that God is trying to cultivate in the heart of his people. Do you know why? It is really hard, really difficult to be angry at someone who is actually humble. It's really easy to be angry at someone who is prideful and full of themselves and an idiot. But even if that person is an idiot, if they're humble and kind, it's really hard. It's difficult to be angry at them. And God is wanting to grow his kingdom on earth. And the way he wants to do that is through you. And if other people are going to see a quality in you that makes them think about God, it starts with humility. It starts with our ability to say, I don't have it all figured out. 
I am not God's gift to the world. Jesus is God's gift to the world. I do know him, and I am humble because he has done for me what I could never have done for myself. The shaping of our character begins with humility, and it involves investing in our spiritual lives. This investment, again, the weapons of God's kingdom, it's not uh, martial arts. It's, It's right here. It's right here in our hands. It's in God's word. That's where the power of God's kingdom is. That's where it flows into our hearts. We invest in our spiritual lives by opening this, by praying, by engaging in the sacraments like we did this morning. That that beautiful baby, that's why we're here. These are the things that matter in God's kingdom. And the disciples ask, who's the greatest? Who's the Conan the barbarian of God's kingdom? And, God, and Jesus says, bring me that little child. You see this? This is what it's all about. This is where power is. This is where truth is. This is what matters the most in my upside-down kingdom. We invest in our spiritual lives. We open our Bibles. We engage in prayer. We worship. We come together. We go through all of these things so that the fruit may be born in our own lives, that we might find righteousness, peace, and joy, as Paul states it in Romans chapter 14. Think about that. Righteousness comes from one place. It comes from the person of Jesus Christ. It's who he is. It's what he offered on the cross was his righteousness in place of our sinfulness. He made this upside-down swap. He put himself where we belonged. And he took all of that upon himself so that we could be forgiven, we could find peace and ultimately joy. This idea that God has provided for us through the sacrifice of his son those things which are unattainable otherwise righteousness peace and joy will you pray with me God our father we marvel at your word at the ways in which your kingdom is spelled out before us that we are called into this upside-down kingdom to love our enemies, to serve rather than to be served, to develop qualities like humility rather than strength. And Lord, that as we come into your kingdom, we realize that you have done for us that which we could never have done for ourselves by taking on the crown of our sin upon your head, by going to the cross and laying down 
a sinless life, that we could be forgiven, that we could be seen in God's eyes as sinless, without blemish, forgiven, atoned for, redeemed. Lord, may this truth bring to our hearts those qualities of righteousness, peace, and joy that are so elusive in this life. May we continually find them again and again by returning to the foot of your cross and looking up into the eyes of your Son who loves us. It is in his love and his name that we pray. Amen.